Hello and welcome back to Stark Conversations. Before we start this conversation, I do want to give a trigger warning. We are talking about sexual and gender-based violence today, so please take care of yourself. We are discussing a study that was recently conducted by Dr. Trina Orchard. It explores the subjectivity of safety on one college campus, but truly it is a reflection of what is going on in the world at large. According to this study, 20 to 43% of women and 3 to 29% of men attending American universities have been sexually victimized. And in some Canadian provinces, as many as 63% of women students have experienced sexual harassment. This study is the reason why we need to pay attention to when marginalized people say they need safe spaces. It is why we need political correctness, and it is why we need clear and definite lines what is okay and what is not. This is a start conversation. Hey friends, and welcome to Stark Conversations. Here we will have some bare bones, unavoidable, but necessary discussions. I'm your host, Heather Stark. Friends, for years, I kept my tongue glued to the roof of my mouth so that I could fit society's idea of a pretty pleasing woman. However, I always felt broken. It wasn't until I was in my 40s that I realized I'm not broken. No one is broken. It's the way the world was built and the oppressive expectations from society that makes us feel broken. At that moment, I realized how important having a voice in space was, how vital feminism, that's right, feminism is to our world. Feminism is the path to advocacy, healing, and equality. Each week, I'm going to bring you a conversation on the importance of feminism, an action-oriented way of life that empowers, raises voices, and welcomes all people. Please like and subscribe anywhere podcasts are played. I would love to be in conversation with you. Welcome back to Stark Conversations. Today, I am talking to Dr. Trina Orchard. She is an anthropologist, author, and activist committed to greasing the wheels of social change. She is an associate professor and faculty scholar at Western University's School of Health Studies in Ontario, Canada. For over 20 years, she has conducted research with vulnerable communities, including people in sex work, populations impacted by HIV, AIDS, and indigenous societies. The key issues she explores are sexuality, gender, and health, which she examines through a feminist lens. Incidentally, her new book, A Dating Memoir, comes out in April of 2024 called Sticky Sexy Sad, Swipe Culture and the Darker Side of Dating Apps. Dr. Trina Orchard, welcome to Start Conversations. Followed you on Instagram for a while. I am always intrigued by your posts. 
by the things that you write, by your inclusivity. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, okay, I want, I want to be around her and feel some of her energy. That's very nice. I'm really glad. One of the things I find very enthralling about you is um, on your website, you're like anthropologist, a writer, and an advocate. I love that. I love the uh, anthropology because I feel like in another world uh, or in another lifetime, that was me just like kind of understanding and digging. Uh, mm-hmm. One of my favorite books is um, Gods of the Upper Air, where it talks about uh, Margaret Mead and how kind of anthropology and the ideas of what women were really started changing and, and the idea that there was a time where there was equality and, and that didn't start changing until agriculture and men sort of assuming power. And it feels like your intersection is around sex and culture and relationships, which I think is the crux of a lot of inequity uh, between the genders, all genders. Uh, so I want to, first of all, understand how this kind of process of all three and sex and relationships and culture, how did that just kind of unfold? Okay, so we can unpack this in a few different ways. I think just wanted to begin by saying that I think that most researchers and writers focus on issues that have impacted our lives most profoundly, you know, and it can be argued that sex, gender, health impacts everyone's life. But I think it's about the kind of attention that we pay to it. And also if we have been trained in post-secondary and just our, you know, family, trauma, the world around us, the patriarchy, how that has been channeled to us, you know. And also um, for myself, I have long been interested in sex, gender and health uh, relationships. Um, I was often kind of like a little observer in my family. Um, I come from a blended family. And I was often charged with things that were sort of more adult in nature, Um, kind of helping my mom take care of my sisters, um, helping take care of my mom when my stepdad would go away. You know, I'd see my biological dad on the weekends when he was back in the city where I lived. Um, And I moved in very different spaces when I would spend time with him, more activist, feminist, indigenous, different people within the gender and sexuality spectrum how they were raising their children, often communally. So there were a lot of different spaces that I was introduced to as a young person. And I was very, very, very shy and nervous. I didn't really have any self-esteem and I was really encouraged by my mom in a lot of ways to be quiet and don't make yourself too pronounced and things. That was a way to safeguard me from the things that can happen to a young girl that happened to her. course I didn't realize that until a lot later but what it meant was that I began observing the world around me quite closely and taking notes about it and reflecting on it in a rather sophisticated way and relationships were clearly sources of tension and passion and dialogue and gossip and a whole bunch of feelings that I had no idea how to process but um, I guess you could say those were sort of the seeds of some of my um, initial you know, areas of interest. And then over time, I, you know, my first degree is history. I'm very interested in where I come from, Western Canada. So focused on that as well as indigenous culture uh, and history, activism. And then um, my third year of, of the undergrad sort of fell in love with anthropology, finally got a chance to take something more interesting than a first year 
survey course, you know, which I did not do well. I got 69. Thank you very much. Um, but I began to be intrigued in a way when the course options were more interesting and the scholars teaching them were more invested. And, you know, just really was interested in this aspect of life, the implications of it in relation to how I was coming of age as a young woman. Um, you could say sort of troubled by my trauma, but also very curious about the power of sex in and of itself. Uh, so that's kind of some of the foundations. And then it began to be an interest in every project to varying degrees as I, as I move forward in my career. That's fascinating. I love that. Um, I was a history major for 0.5 seconds, you know, <laughs> right. So tell me then, how do you define feminism? Right. Well, I think well, feminism, and I talk about this in my upcoming book, uh, chapter three is about feminism, dating apps, etc. cetera. Uh, you know, there's a spectrum of ways to look at feminism. There's not a singular brand or singular definition. And I think that's really important because often when we are resisted or harassed or, you know, taken down in public settings or in family discussions about what feminism is, you know, the ideas about it are usually very singular. You know, we hate men, don't shave our legs, in all likelihood, we're probably all lesbians, uh, we're not feminine, you know, we, you know, a real man would never like all these kind of things, right? That, that is from, you know, the 70s and even earlier, you know, and so there seems to be an unwillingness. And I don't think there's enough space given to the spectrum of feminism. There are more radical folks who are a bit more in line with the idea that male violence, for instance, is the source of all female oppression. Um, that's a very kind of, very often very binary, male, female. There's not a whole lot of acknowledgement of gender and sexual diversity within that camp. And then there's sort of the other end, which is a bit more activist oriented, uh, sex positive feminism, which is sort of where I would certainly see myself. Um, that's about unpacking inequities that impact all of us, not just about cis het women, but about female identifying people, but also across the range of genders and also really looking at the political context of inequity. Uh, so there's, and there's also, there are feminists who are quite exclusionary. You know, there are the ones who really reject trans, transgender and gender uh, non-conforming folks. Um, so there's a real range of feminism, but essentially it's about addressing and responding to inequities that impact all of us you know, women primarily, but everyone else as well. That's sort of my idea about feminism. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate the the inclusion of that and all genders and, and sex positive because I think that's what traps traps us all up in oppression, in expressing ourselves, or like even to me, I'm 47 and, you know, I'm still like shamed by certain things um, with sex and you know, and I know I'm not the only one. Here. That's just a big, huge thing. So you wrote a recent paper that you sent to me, and I really found it very fascinating. And it was titled, It Can Be Very Easy to Feel Uncomfortable, Sociospatial Constructs of Campus Safety Among University Students and Administrations. And you just got to get this idea that safety is really set up for the privileged, and because of this, there's a lot of gender-based and sexual violence. 
this does reflect the rest of the world. And the things that you said in it, things that have come up, I'm like, you know, we can be more proactive. Why aren't we being proactive about this? And, and if we know what breeds trauma, why are we setting safety up only to help certain people? Yeah, well, I think it's, it's really important. And, you know, one of the many things that the paper reveals um, is how the campus is a microcosm of the broader society, right? We often think of the campus or the bubble as it's referred to at this university and many other universities that call it the bubble. You know, it's even, it's geographically distinct from other parts of the city. There are hills with towers that is all about status and elevation, right? <laughs> and so there was the idea that these distinctive spaces, class privilege, racial privilege, I mean, you know, my university used to be a country club, <laughs> you know, literally yeah. a country club. Um, so you know who were included yeah. and who were excluded. Yeah. yeah. And so knowing that that is the history and that is a very colonial space, mm -hmm. you know, adding on to it, adding new buildings, adding new administration, like there is just an adding on to this deeply problematic structure that from whence it came. And so if you think about the ways that safety is experienced by different groups, it makes sense in a way but it does contest the dominant notion of universities, right? Um, it, mm -hmm. they're, a bit, they're a bit darker. And there are, ex a lot of what I talked about in that paper is not really that new. A lot of the campus safety mm -hmm. literature has said quite similar things to what I was un unpacking with the people who took part in the study. But, you know, I had a range of participants in terms of gender, sex, not that much racial diversity, but I had a little bit of racial diversity and it just came to the fore. You know, folks who identify as queer do not feel safe on campus and they're, what they see in terms of, you know, queer promotion and prevention and safety things, it's very generic and it's like the institution's kind of tone deaf and doesn't really put enough resources into it. And then racialized students have said that they experience a lot of pressure to say the right thing in class and to respond to every single issue that is raised or questioned or debate about race. They are literally, the class looks at them and, uh, and waits for, for a response. And there's also additional pressure to really get the response perfect because the pre-existing racial stereotypes about people of color somehow being less educated or less articulate than the dominant white you know, population on campus. And so what is revealed in these interviews is how rare they feel safe. And when I asked them about safety, they talked about fear, which is not uncommon, but it's important to acknowledge and work into ongoing dialogues about these issues. Thank you. I appreciate that. One, you said two things that, that connected with me. One was the idea of universities are colonial spaces. So, okay, yeah. Yes, of course, because the first people that could go to universities were men, and that's how it was set up. So, okay, I can see how that trickles down. And then the idea that the students have to get what they say correct. You know, they feel like they've got to be perfect, those of different races and, and genders. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, that takes away the human spirit. You know, humanity stumbles. I'm stumbling through this interview. That's We stumble through our thoughts as we're trying to articulate them, and they don't get the same grace that the rest of the, the, the student population does. One of the things that you talked about was listening with a feminist 
ear. And I ha I understand that, mm -hmm. but I've never heard that terminology. And so I'd really like for you to just explain listening with a feminist ear, especially when it has to do with these type of situations that cause oppression and inequity. Yeah, so that's a term that the feminist scholar uh, Sarah Ahmed uses, and she's a very well-known scholar, um, and she, her most recent book is called Complaint! Exclamation mark. That's the title of the book. And it's looking at sexual harassment within the context of a neoliberal university. So it's very germane to the political context of the study and also just how I think about where I work. And one of the things she discusses is listening and, you know, the idea of the feminist ear as a methodology or an approach to understand what the participants are saying and also to make sense or analyze it. And so when she's talking about using a feminist ear, and when I bring in this idea in my own paper, it's about acknowledging the power of how we listen to what people say, because everything is filtered through our cultural lens. You know, mm -hmm. you can have two people, you know, exposed to the exact same sentence, and the way that they interpret it could be very different, especially depending if they come from different social locations. Right? And so when looking at a paper and people's experiences within a very powerfully charged setting, it's kind of incumbent upon us to try and be very mindful to listen to not just what people say, but how they say it. What is the emotional tenor of someone's voice? You know, do they repeat themselves? Do they use certain terms as a way to glorify what they're saying or perhaps to reduce the attention provided on them or to, you know, make excuses for someone? You know, how do they articulate their lived experiences. And part of listening with a feminist ear is also about being attentive to things that are not being said. And we can't be a fortune teller and like try and like predict or have a crystal ball of what the participant is, is not saying. But all of these interviews were done in person. And so, you know, recalling the instances of when the students came to my office, tears are shed. You know, I would bring down a Kleenex box if I thought it was important and I began to do it regularly, how would I set up my office in order to help people feel comfortable when talking about these challenging things? And also interviewing other people, the administrators in their office spaces where I didn't have that same kind of control, how did they make me feel comfortable? How did they, you know, receive the questions? You know, was there, um, how did it change depending on where they were within the university hierarchy? those kinds of things. I didn't write about all of those things, but they really informed how I made sense of what people said. And I think we are people, we're not just our data. <laughs> and so the feminist ear just really was important politically uh, to me as a feminist as well, to really sort of bring as much richness as possible to the paper. Thank you. And thank you for the reminders. It's not just how you're listening, it's the environment that you're setting things up in. Huge, huge. Um, I used to be a school counselor and I had a principal get frustrated mm -hmm. with me one time because I asked for this huge desk to be moved out. And I was like, how, I was trying to explain to him how I could get trust with these students and parents if there was this huge desk in between us, you know, that's a position of power and, you know, I've got to get rid of that. So I appreciate you, you reminding us that it's the environment. It's not just listening. It's what you've set up for trust and safety. So in your, your article, the statistics of sexual violence, 
that's a lot. That was high. Was that alarming to you? Were you surprised by that? No. No. Um, similar to the rates of domestic violence and abuse, they remained steady for decades. Steady. And the same is true with campus violence. You know, looking at the research, you know, doing a lit review for this paper and things like that, it's remarkable that so many of us say the same things at the end of these papers, whether they're written in 2023 or whether they're written in 1983. The similarities are remarkable. And so that tells us how little people are listening to what we are saying, because what we are saying is not revolutionary, actually, but what it makes universities, in this instance, this is the institution that I'm concerned with, what it has to make them sort of contend with and what they push back against is no one wants to be known as a school that is unsafe or a rape school, for instance, or a party school. You know, there's a lot of work and a lot of communications efforts, a lot of marketing and promotion to tell different kinds of stories. Of course, no university is just a party school or, you know, just a place of violence. Violence is everywhere, sadly. But I think that there is a definite pushback because of the financial and, and the reputation politics that are at stake, you know. And also, it's also very much intimately tied with the fact that we have normalized this as part of the college experience. You go, you party, you explore, which is true for many of us. But the stakes are high and we need to talk about it. And there is an unwillingness to devote resources and acknowledge how structural change can happen to make far more students, typically women and other, other genders and other racial um, groups beyond the white majority, to help them feel safer. That's often seen as, well, that's additional resources. Oh, that's extra money. We don't have time for that. Oh, that just happens during the first week of school. After that, everything's fine and nothing could be further from the truth. And I mean, could the argument made if those statistics are, are pretty steady throughout the decades, you're getting more and more people in college. So 60% of college enrollment in 1983 is this, but 60% in 2023. And so you're just, it's more students. That's alarming. That's alarming. And yes. I, I did a, an interview with a woman um, coming out of incarceration and you know, she again talks about resources. If we could you know, people could get past bulking about the work that has to be done beforehand. That is smoother, not smooth, smoother sailing for the rest of, for whatever institution you're trying to build. You know, if we could just invest in the, in the statistics that we know and be more proactive. You might actually generate more students, right? Because parents, like one of the things I've often said is that this is an opportunity to be a leader in safety. Hello. You want to be a leader in all these other aspects of the student experience and research and things like that. Let me tell you, parents would be very, very happy if they could see a meaningful structural change happen and documentation and communication to the public, not just within, you know, the very bounded community of the university. That's a win, right? Yeah. Yes. As, as a parent of a college kid, she goes to University of Arkansas, which is one of the hilliest <laughs> um, colleges there there is in the U.S. And so, yeah, yeah, it is, you know, if she's on campus at night and she's going to take public transportation, she does, which we're going to talk about here in a minute, either call me or act like she's on the phone with somebody. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. So one of the things you talked about how you wrote that debates about campus safety are contentious and highlight the divide between those who advocate for inclusivity and trauma-informed policy and more conservative factions who eschew those things as infantization, excuse me, and an encroachment of free speech. So can you tell me tell me more about that, that debate? Yeah, I think, you know, safety is a very contested term. You know, I think when, when some people bring it up, you know, some folks roll their eyes and here we go again. This, this, these, these groups are going to say, you know, they don't have enough or they need more resources or, you know, they're maybe perceived as being snowflakes, you know, that everything is, you know, has to be curated and, and soft and, you know, to their own liking for them to be able to thrive. Uh, and then there are other people who, you know, perhaps have children and have experienced different experience, different instances of violence, whether it's sexual, gender-based, or otherwise, knowing that this is a space where there are a lot of young people together. There are very few adults, comparatively speaking, you know, in terms of the ratio between adults and students, and some students are living on campus, and a lot of them have access to alcohol and other kinds of drugs, both illegal and, you know, and legal, I guess, and some aspects of their lives are supervised. Other aspects are not, and the party atmosphere is part of the campus culture. And so, for those folks, discussions about safety are of the utmost importance. And it's not about hand holding or treating everyone like like a special snowflake. It's about protecting and acknowledging the realities that impact students on a day to day basis. And it's also about acknowledging, you know, the university to own up to their responsibility for these young kids who are paying a great deal of money for residents as well as courses. And, you know, who is responsible for them? Parents are sending them with a good, in a good spirit. And, you know, at the university, you know, they're not living at home anymore, some of them. And it's like, so who is responsible for these young people? But again, it's a very divided um, kind of discussion. And it's, some people say, well, there's no place that is safe, which is in some ways true. One cannot control for all of the parameters of safety because you know, no one knows what is gonna be triggering to one person. You know, something can happen in a minute and set in action you know, a whole train of, of things that you could never, never predict. But that doesn't mean that we stop talking about it. We're not looking for seal-proof situations. We're looking for more meaningful engagement and more active uh, deployment of strategies that reflect how people talk about the way that they move through these spaces. Lived experience has to inform the policy so that it's going to make a difference in a meaningful way. Many of you know that I live on a small island off the coast of Texas, and we treasure our beach walks. However, every time we go, we are picking up plastic that is washed ashore. That's why I'm super excited about this company, Sun and Swell Foods. Sun and Swell Foods is the nation's first online plastic-free grocery store. Shop their assortment of delicious, healthy foods and plastic-free compostable packaging. Don't have access to composting? Well, you can send the used bags back to them via their compostable bag send back program. So take a listen to some of these statistics. 
by 2050, there will be more plastic in the ocean than fish. Only 9% of the plastic created has ever been recycled, and we consume the equivalent of one credit card's worth of plastic every week. So let's choose some food in eco-friendly packaging. And let's talk about that food in the eco-friendly packaging. Sentenceville Foods are delicious, 100% plant-based, vegan, 100% gluten-free, 100% real foods, no added preservatives or ingredients, and once again, comes in compostable packaging. It's also woman-owned. It's a woman-owned small business, so why not promote it on a feminist podcast? If you're looking for a more planet-friendly pantry, shop Sun and Swell and get 20% off site-wide when you go to sunandswellfoods.com and use code STARK76 at checkout. That's 20% off your entire order when you use STARK76 at sunandswellfoods.com. When you were talking about the university, a bubble or a microcosm for what's going on, this is one of the things I thought about is how people get so frustrated when they are, um, when we talk about safe spaces or they just like, oh my gosh, we can't be politically correct about everything. And I'm like, the, the consequence of that is unsafe and violence and hurt, you know, um, yeah. that's just right. Yeah. So true to me. Um, one of the, the other things, and this kind of goes back to those colonial spaces, is that you talk about universities are set up to reflect systems of, of the white cisgender male that is in power. And, and so first of all, I just kind of want to give some just like really plain examples to, so people can picture in their head what that means, like what it means when a system is set up to protect your white guys. Right. And a lot, I just would begin with by saying that a lot of this was articulated in a particular way by the administrative mm. participants. Interesting. So the people who, yeah. So the students mentioned it a little bit. One example was of um, a student who was in a fraternity house and they posted some kind of like really disgusting post about viewing the incoming group of first-year students as fresh meat, right? And when confronted about it, the students said, it's a joke. Why can't you take a joke, right? So speaking about women in particular as being food to be eaten, right? Desirable food to be eaten by, you know, the more senior folks in the fraternity, um, that's uh, very predatorial. Right, and it's being framed as a joke, and uh, you know he just didn't get the women's um, resistance to it, and the fact that they were saying this is not funny, you know he just completely brushed it off. Uh, there are many other instances at the beginning of school at the university where I teach, and and in other places there are banners that are hung in the windows that say all kinds of revolting things about young women who attend. You know, and they are very rarely are they taken down by local admin. They're just sort of like, you know, like we'll just leave them up for the first week of partying. You know, they'll come down, and then, you know, the young, you know, boys will be boys, and you know, the, the year will begin, and then we might not have to be concerned about it. Another example is a recent, a couple of years ago, at a um, graduation ceremony at my university. You know, honorary degrees are provided, honorary doctorates, 
and one person who received an honorary doctorate began talking about those signs that can be hanging in the windows, saying very disparaging things about young women. They're often, back in the day, they were hung above like medians and people driving under them could, could see signs and some of the signs were like, thank your fathers for leave for, you know, having your, your female students go to Western, you know, we, we can't wait to enjoy them and think like, it was even worse than that. But this guy who was getting an honorary degree he, re he reflected with nostalgia about the good old days of Western and what this institution meant to him as a student, how he thanked those fathers for, you know, this kind of like revolting thing, and he still got his honorary degree. So these are some very specific and quite recent examples of how these spaces are set up for particular groups. Shocking. People. That's shocking. And so and yeah. when you open that door, then and it happens you know like it's so in my mind i'm like well where in in the people that are allowing this where's that line then where is the line you've you've totally blurred the line instead of saying no this is this is clear cut right here um and it's shocking because in my mind places of academia are where new thoughts are developed and, and i think this is referenced in the article new thoughts are developed you've got these more liberal views but now that you've talked about colonial spaces, I can understand where that conflict happens. And so, I mean, how do we get past that? How do we, is it conversation? Right, well, I think, I think it's important to remember that just because these are spaces of education, that it doesn't mean that they're more, more liberal. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that um, that narrative, I think is, I've heard it more in, in the US uh, I, I mean, it, it does apply to a certain degree here, but not hmm. entirely. And, and, you know, a lot of people remark on when you talk about workplace drama and tension and stress, wow, I never thought that that would happen in a place where everyone's educated. <laughs> it, it's just as bereft and just as full of conflict um, that reflects broader society as anywhere else, right? Um, and uh, so that's something to be reminded yeah. of but so your question about how do we move beyond yeah I mean how do we enter how, how do we get some footing on here right well to get this footing you have to have political will okay you have to have buy-in from senior leadership you have to have buy-in from our communications people those people are very important because those are the ones who design the website they handle a lot of the media requests, and that is what the public sees. They don't come to the campus necessarily. They don't all take our classes, but they see what's online. They see what's in the newspapers, what makes headlines all around the world, you know, in terms of violence and sexual-based trauma. You know, two years ago at the university where I work, you know, there was an incidence of mass alleged um, drugging, and up to 30 young women came forth and said that they had been they had been maliciously drugged and there was a whole sequence it made headlines around the world the very first term back after COVID in person and it was a nightmare I happened to be on sabbatical during that time and I was still advocating to the best of my my ability even though I wasn't on campus but that incident continues to haunt our students and there were a couple of residences where a lot of this went down and in fact, 
there are certain floors on the one residence in particular, which is popularly referred to as being haunted. So when people say, oh, we've developed policies, oh, we, we have more police on campus, we have online training that is required for everybody. Those things are important, but they don't really impact structural change and they don't acknowledge the cultural impact for successive groups of students. You know, that just broke my heart when I learned that they feel like that space is haunted. Yeah. It doesn't mean that there's not huge groups of students like partying their asses off right now, that it's true, but this is a time, especially the first couple of weeks, especially for first year students, when they are most vulnerable, they are often away from families, lots of alcohol and partying often, not exclusively, but often, and things can get out of hand very quickly. And so these are times when we need to continue the dialogue, not just like not just have it in the first couple of weeks, because although the danger does subside or changes for the rest of the year, it doesn't go away. And it's not just students behaving badly. It's also the fact that the university does not consistently or other institutions respond in a meaningful way that lets us know that they're taking culture change seriously. There's a lot of ad hoc strategies. A lot of them are great, but I don't think a lot of them are going to really impact the structural nature of the system. And that came through in the paper as well when they're talking about the culture in the institution from the administrative side of the coin and how they often feel very silenced. Mm -hmm. The dominant culture is white, het, male, cis. It silences queer providers. It silences and really demeans the ability of feminists and women who have a critical, strong voice from sharing what they want to share with their peers, and it also can make them less likely to advocate for students, especially from more diverse locations. So this all trickles down into everything. Mm. And my next question was, you know, if administration and faculty members weren't feeling safe, it's top down, you know, the effects of that. And you just, yeah, you just said, even if the people at the top aren't gonna feel safe, how are people, how are students? It's huge. Yeah huge dominoes dominoes yeah exactly exactly the one of the other things that I've never thought about because I never had to think well as a woman I had to think about it but not in terms of the intersection of the intersectionality of feminism was how subjective the idea of safe is and some of the things that stuck out to me were students were like well yeah it's kind of safe and to me kind of safe isn't safe and the idea of Safety can be subjective um, when I really don't feel like it should be, you know? Well, I think we, we sort of grew up with an idea about what safety means, mm-hmm. right? And I think one of the things that this research and many of the campus research will reveal is that there are many different kinds of safety. Mm-hmm. There's emotional safety, right? There's physical in terms of like infrastructure safety. Uh, there's interpersonal safety. Right? And then there's safety, I think, that is raised in, in the paper. There's safety like in terms of culture, culture of the institution. Right? So there's, uh, you know, although it would be nice to have a clear-cut, singular, safety means this, this is what we need to do to achieve yeah. it. Oh, if it was that easy, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation, right? But it's not. And I think that's part of how, you know, concepts, emerge and flourish and develop and get complicated over time 
and it's very much connected with what you, it's about intersectionality. I think for a very long time we had very specific bounded ideas about what safety means, but we now know that that excluded and didn't take into consideration a lot of things that impact a lot of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, when I was reading it, I thought, okay, well, for some people, you know, grandma's house was safe to me, but for some people, grandma's house is not safe because, you know, Uncle Henry lives there or grandpa lives there or grandma, you know, um, your own yes. house, your own bed, you know, for some, for some partners that are, you know, uh, victims yeah. of domestic abuse. So yeah, it just, reading your article there, I mean, I could just see the waves of, of impact and how it does represent things. And so one of the things just kind of like, if we were to take your paper and just let's, let's look at the world, let's look at the world and um, regarding sexual violence, our culture is set up to be unsafe. I mean, is that, and, and so then I'm like, okay, is it, has it always been constructed that way to be in, has it always been constructed that way to be unsafe or did people in power find loopholes in the way it was constructed to do violence? Right. Well, I think like, you know, our contemporary society over the last couple hundred years, which has been primarily patriarchal, is set up in a particular way that we have come to know as normal, as the system, as the world around us. Um, perhaps especially for those of us who live in the global north and or more western kind of situations. Um, when reflecting on, you know, has it always been you know, has the system always been rigged? I think the short answer is yes, because it is a patriarchal system that is designed for the privilege and the access and the power and success and the voice of a particular group of people, which has been traditionally in the last few hundred years, white, male, able-bodied, often cis and hetero. And, you know, those were the people who were mm -hmm. leaders in science, in education, in politics. Look at our CEO structure. Sure, there are a few women, but really we've made very little headway because people are digging their claws in to maintain the good old days because it's what benefits them. And they are resistant to the idea of change. And it's like, I don't want your table. I want my own table, or I don't need your chair, I'll just pull in beside you. There's lots of space for us to share and do this in a collaborative way, but that threatens the existing system in such powerful ways. Um, so in terms of whether our society has been set up to be unsafe, I think it's been set up in a patriarchal way, which in turn is unsafe for a great many of us. But keeps those in power safe. Yeah, yeah. Zencaster is now the all-in-one solution making podcasting easy. It's the ultimate web-based podcasting solution. It provides high-quality audio and video podcast production and hosting. With a full suite of professional tools, podcasters can seamlessly record, produce, and publish studio-quality content all from one dashboard. Being a creator has never been this easy. Friends, I started using Zencaster when I realized how much faster editing goes when your guests and you have two separate audio tracks. It's now super easy to record a podcast with Zencaster. 
Log in using your browser and start recording a high-quality podcast right away. Record studio-quality sound and up to 4K video with your guests. Feel a sense of zen knowing Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is bad which happens a lot when you live on an island. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, friends, those days are over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other major destinations. Go to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use my code Stark76 and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you, friend, to have the same easy experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It is time to share your story. Sexual violence doesn't seem to be decreasing um, because victims are often not taken seriously. And the idea of sexual harassment and sexual violence and the idea of one of the things you talked about was, you know, the cat calling and followed by not touched. I mean, that's sexual harassment. It's not taken seriously. Do you see how we could reach a level of sexual wellness in a society that doesn't, that doesn't value and prefers to shame women, LGBTQIA, and male victims? I mean, is there is there a point where that's going to, and I'm not saying that everybody has sexual unwellness, but is there a point where, I'm going to back up. When we talk about feminism, no woman has equality until all women have equality. When we're talking about sexual wellness, I guess that's what I'm asking. There's not true sexual wellness for anybody if we still have these factions that are dealing with it. Yeah, and I think that that is true. You know, there are variations, you know, looking at the world around us, it doesn't mean because there is so much inequity and violence that I don't experience a certain degree of sexual wellness, I do. But it's very dependent on my ability to articulate myself. It is dependent upon my access to resources and information and having the ability to live and to move and to move my body and articulate in spaces that I am privileged to. So while there is a relationship between what is happening in the world and each of us as individuals, I just, it's important to, you know, there's spectrums and variations and intersections, you know, across the board, but you're right until the status quo changes because the status quo does impact everything. We are going to be continuing to scurry around and have pockets of money and pockets of people doing incredible things, but they're always going to be off the side of their desk. You know, how do we impact change at the center? Well, I think we need to remove a lot of the people who are at the center, frankly, um, and do so in a way that perhaps, you know, I mean, I feel like we are in a bit of an upheaval and it's kind of like Mardi Gras. Things are inverted and upside down, which often happens when you're doing a structural change or trying to and sort of calling out the inequities of power. People get pretty unsettled about that. But those can be spaces for us to intervene and intersect and sort of try and get ahead of some of what is to come. And younger people in particular, I think we see them just completely not having any interest in our economic system. They're making their own careers. They're having their own terminologies about different kinds of communities. I don't mean to romanticize Gen Z, but they are interesting. And so many of us are interested in them for a lot of different reasons. 
you know, they're like, okay, boomer, whatevs. Like our world is different and we don't want what you gave us. That's not our inheritance because you speak a different language. You give us this planet that's on fire. You did a bad job. And to just continue to do, to be passed on this stuff, we're not having it. And so I think there's just so much potential there for them, but also for us, right? We often look at young people as modicums of change. And I think that we have a lot to learn from how young people are inverting the system that so many of us struggle in. So good. And that, that actually covers like my next questions is, you know, what are the steps that we need to be moving into? And so I, if I'm hearing you, it's, we need to start listening to the next generation. And when they say you hurt us, we don't have the option of saying, no, we didn't, you know, our, our job is, is to open ourselves up and do some serious self-examination. Yes. And, you know, really find a way to dismantle the contemporary systems of power, which a lot of us have been trying to do for most of our lives. A lot of women and other and other scholars and, and researchers and writers, you know, I will say in terms of people who I find is so inspiring, you know, we're looking at queer and indigenous literatures and things and film, drama, playwrights, activists, you know, there's so much to learn from the way that they articulate their experiences and it's beautiful and it's so powerful and it's just on the rise on the rise and that's so exciting and important and uh, finding ways to be allies and to read those books and promote those authors if it's appropriate if that's what they would like or we think that would be helpful for their careers be in dialogue bring those ideas to the campus that's another way that we can destabilize the current power system Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that. Just giving space and realizing that that these people have been fighting it in ways that we will most of us don't understand. So let's just kind of give that. Let's not kind of let's give them the space. And it kind of brings us back full circle because these people are talking in such a way that we've talked about listening with the feminist ear. They are speaking the things that we need to be listening to with that feminist ear and providing the environment that they need. Yeah, so we say thank you. We say thank you. Yes. And we'll listen. Yes. Right? Yeah. 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 My I mean my next two questions were, you know, what will it what do you think it will take to get people to start listening with the feminist ear and how do we encourage that? And I mean we you just you hit on all of those points. We've got yeah. to Yeah, I think, you know, before we can remove the people in power. I think, you know, we need to sort of continually introduce ideas, continue the work about having different dialogues about power and being insistent, you know, picking our battles for sure, because it gets tiring. It's tiring on the front line, right? And each of us have our own front line, as it were. But even just that term, I just used it without thinking. And that's about, that's a military term. Mm-hmm. So this is a war. You look at the war on women's bodies. Mm-hmm. All the different education things that are happening. You can't teach real history. You know, you cannot have um, gender surgeries. All these kinds of things. Roe v. Wade, etc. You know, there is a war. There is a cultural war going on, and we need 
more voices. And I will say in particular, it would be very nice to hear more from powerful men. That's been something that has been raised quite often. Mm -hmm. We are not trying to entirely displace you. You know, not all men. Oh my goodness. No, we need you brothers. You know, we need you because the system is not really necessarily benefiting all of you either. You know, there's a very, very particular group of men that the patriarchy actually protects, right? And, but we need to have allies across the gender world as well. And not just from the people who are experiencing oppression, but from the people who currently enjoy power. Thank you for saying that. That's such a good reminder. Um, thank you for your work. Thank you for being willing to share and talk and your honesty and your vulnerability and for giving space to these things that are going to make a difference and make a difference. I have to imagine make a difference with your students when they see somebody in the position that you have and they're like, okay, you know, she's, she's talking our, she's talking and she's walking the things that are important to us and it empowers them. It does. Yeah. And I've had such beautiful feedback from students, including students who were in that particular, you know, 3630, that particular class in 2019, you know, I've had students say when, you said that you were going to start a project after we shared our experiences. That's when I knew that you would do anything for us. Yeah. Yeah. It's huge. That's the it best. Is. It is. Cause it's like, yes, yeah. it's my moral and ethical and human obligation. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I am going to do whatever I know. And that grant I got was less than $7,000. I've got two very high impact peer review publications. You don't need a lot of money to do good scholarship, but you can't just let it lay in the repository if you're an action-oriented feminist researcher. Okay, so yeah. how do we wanna implement this to get the wheels of social change moving? And part of it takes a lot of courage to speak out against the institution, but I do it not just to be like, wah, wah, you suck, that's not it. That doesn't get anybody anywhere. I'm doing right. it to expose things in order to, this is an opportunity, right? Yes. An opportunity to make a difference that is very specific and that impacts everybody. And again, you know, you're welcome. Yes, thank you. And that's um, one last point is that I think sometimes when we do these things and we speak out, people are like, eh, you're just complaining. And you're like, no, no, no. If you would listen with the feminist ear, you would actually hear what we're saying. So, right. you know, and, you know, it's probably involves you more than you even realize, but we're so dulled to the normalized way of being that sometimes it can be hard to imagine what it might feel like, what walking across the campus might feel like for a woman. You know, I have had not just students reach out, but I've had colleagues reach out about how they still feel as adults, women, walking across our own campus and others were like that's exactly how how i felt during my undergrad you know mm -hmm. so that also shows us how little has changed and how yeah. timely and important this is yes thank you thank you so much i will be in touch um and i will continue to follow you um okay. for your your wisdom so thank you <laughs> wonderful thank you so much heather this is such a nice conversation and i really appreciate the work that you do Oh, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. Thank you.